Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. Trevor Wood, author of the Jimmy Mullen series, the second of which, One Way Street, is available online now in various formats, is my co-host today. Uh, Trevor's fresh off the award-winning season that he's had. Basically, he's been the Titanic of 2020-2021, uh, <laughs> and he's cleaning up with all those major awards and sort of uh, all the positive feedback and praise he's been getting on what was an excellent book. And I haven't read the second one yet. But as soon as you get a copy to me, I will do that. And I'm sure it'll be as fabulous as the first. Thank you, Trevor, for coming on today. Um, Didn't uh, the Titanic sink? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's still That's time for right. that. Still time. But it, it did win something like 11 Oscars. So, I mean, swings and roundabouts, Trevor. Swings and roundabouts. Uh, okay. Um, okay. So our guest today is Ellie Griffiths. Uh, Ellie is written... <laughs> Ellie has written uh, a whole host of books... 13, I believe, in the Dr. Ruth Galloway series, the 13th of which, The Nighthawks, is now out and about. You can pick up that in hardback. Um, and I know there are signed copies available with Waterstones. I was just looking at one earlier on. I absolutely love the front covers, by the way. Ellie's also written a number of standalone novels and the Brighton Mystery series as well. I'm really happy to have you on, Ellie. And not least because ever since we had the idea of doing this podcast, Every week, Trevor said, we should get Ellie Griffiths on. And I've said, absolutely, let's do it. And so we've had the same conversation for, for what feels like 52 weeks now, every week. Uh, and now here you are. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for asking me. And I'm very glad it's by popular request. That's brilliant. <laughs> the Trevor it's was a... having to, you know, force you to have me on here. So that's great. It's because of your schedule, man. We couldn't get you any other, <laughs> any other time. It's too busy. I'm just sitting in the shed writing. That's all I'm doing now. <laughs> Okay, so so tell us, we'll start there then. Uh, tell us about the writing shed and what is your kind of writing, um, what's the system you have in place for when you write? So yeah, I'm sort of talking to you, it's a shed at the top of my garden, we were just chatting be before this, and I was saying that even in Brighton, so I live in Brighton, so we're just not used to the cold, even in Brighton it's really, really cold. Um, but I'm here in my writing shed, I usually have my cat with me, and I try and write every day, I'm um, contracted at the moment to write two books a year, so that's like one of the Ruth books and another book, either a standalone and one of the Brighton mysteries. So I do try and write every day, thousand words a day. That's my mantra. I don't know. Are you a thousand words a day person, Trevor? No, well, kind of. I, I don't work at weekends, though, Ellie, so I kind of aim for 5,000 a week. So, yes. yeah, I guess. I, guess. I so. don't really work at weekends. Well, if I do work at weekends, I kind of feel incredibly martyred. I sort of sit here. <laughs> no, I don't know what else I would be doing, really. But I kind of sit here with the cat, thinking, look at me, working away at the weekend. Yeah, I know. I don't know. My, uh, luckily, my wife has taken up pottery during lockdown, and she's, um, so she's got something else to do. So I can sometimes get away with working. How wonderful, though. I, 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 I'm addicted to the pottery throwdown. I, I keep thinking to myself, I'd love to do that, but she's actually doing it. Wow. I'm, I'm not addicted to it, but I'm forced to watch it. <laughs> and um, blown away the glass programme as well. Yeah, I know. I've got to suffer for my art, Ellie, frankly. Well, you know, it's worth it. <laughs> so so you, your contract of two books a year, you were saying then, and so are you... Are you somebody who plans out what you're writing, or do you just kind of go with the idea and see where you end up? Do you edit as you go? What's the what's the process there? 
Do you know, it's changed a bit, Adam, actually. It's changed. So when I first started writing, and um, so you're quite right, this is my 13th Ruth book. But I think it's something like my 25th book. So I wrote four books under my own name, which is Domenica de Rosa, which I know sounds made up, but that is my real name. So I wrote four books as Domenica de Rosa, and there were 13 Ruth books. There were six Brighton Mysteries, two children's books, and two standalones. I couldn't even begin to add all that up. So when I first started writing sort of crime stories, I did do a plan. I did a kind of chapter plan, just longhand. But I did basically work out what would happen in each chapter and also what would happen at the end. Um, and about four books back, actually, I think it was with, I know it was with my first standalone, Stranger Diaries. I just didn't write down a plan. And actually, that was my most complicated plot because it's written in, in three different voices and it looks at the same event in three different ways. So it was very complicated. And I didn't have a written plan and it did seem to work out. So that's given me a bit of confidence. So now I don't have a written plan. Now it is still in my head. Um, and so far, that's worked out okay. Mm. Um, and I don't, I only really do one draft, but I, I wouldn't like you to get away with the fact that the thought that I'm incredibly polished, but because I do sort of, you know, edit it as I go along. But basically, when I finished it, then I sent it to my editor, who's also Trevor's editor, um, Jane Wood. So she's always the first person to see the book um, when it's finished. So I don't, I don't show it to my husband or to any beta readers. I, in fact, my husband hasn't read my books, even though he's an archaeologist and has sort of inspired them, but he doesn't read them. So Jane's always the first person to read it. So I kind of only do one draft. Um, so you, you don't have anybody who sees it apart from until no, Jane sees it. No, wow. Jane, Jane's always the first person to see it, and I'm a bit superstitious about that. Like I don't want to show the screen or anything like that. I don't want anyone to look at it. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I know it's all very, very different. What, what do you do, Trevor? What's your? Well, I, I a variety of things. I've got a few people who I use to read stuff. Um, Couple of couple of my writer friends from my the NA I did so Harriet Tice um, generally reads my stuff still because I read hers so we swap around. Got a local writers group that I share some of it with. I mean I've only read about a third of it by the time I've finished because of the time scale of things. I do um, think that's the really good thing about writers groups, isn't it? And I teach on a creative writing MA. And I always say to the students, that is one of the things that's given them, is this wonderful group of writers who will read your stuff. And, you know, I always feel quite envious because our mutual friend, William Shaw, he's in a writer's group in Brighton where we both live. And in his writer's group is C.J. Sampson. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that? What Why, what have, you, have you been blackballed? Why are you not allowed in the right? <laughs> Do you know, I'm, I'm only just starting to, to think about that, Trevor. There's this amazing writers group and I'm not in it. But I think I'd be quite scared to kind of read something aloud with William and, and Chris, as I call him, who I've only met him once, Chris Thompson in the room, you know. Uh, it would be very frightening. But actually, I think that they're, they're all terribly supportive of each other. But I, I mean, your writers group, you've got Harriet Tyson, you, my gosh, that's quite high powered. It is. I, I do find it useful. And my, that, you know, there are, they've got strengths that I don't have. So I'm, I'm terrible at not, I just don't like description much. I don't really like to tell people <laughs> where things are happening. You know, I just like to get on with it. So one of my writer friends is very good at saying, where are we? What's the room like? Mm. <laughs> Do you think that's because you were a scriptwriter, a playwright? Yeah, probably, I think, probably. You just want to well, say in, 
in brackets and let and let the the script um the scene setter do the do the setting. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also that I, I'm a big um, believer in that William Goldman thing about um, enter late and leave early. So I like to come in while things have already happened, you know, and just straight into something. So I don't like to go. Oh, the the office was. You know, had white walls and a lovely desk, and I, I really don't care, frankly. Mm. I'm a bit like that though, because I, I suppose my background was I was an editor, and I do tend to cut a lot of that out, and and like you say, just sort of enter while it's all happening. And Jane, our editor, is often saying to me, you know, take your time, you know, have a breath, <laughs> describe it. Um, though I, I do quite like describing the scenery because the, the Ruth series is set in, in Norfolk and I do quite like that. I do quite I, like I, that. I noticed I was reading Nighthawks, as I told you the other day, um, only a week ago. And I noticed that very cleverly, I think it was Nelson, but uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly one of your characters said something about the flowers and then he kind of said, oh, I don't know anything about flowers, so I don't care what it is. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. I should use that kind of stuff. That's great. There were some flowers in the garden. I don't know what they were because I don't care about them. It's great. I, I, I do like writing Nelson. I think in a way he's a bit based on my dad. So Nelson's, um, my dad was Italian, Nelson's not. Uh, but both of them have a kind of disregard for nature. And I always remember my dad saying, I'm fed up with people talking about trees. You'd expect God to make a good tree, wouldn't you? I just like houses. So I kind of like channeling him in Nelson. And it's always quite good, isn't it, to describe beautiful scenery through the eyes of someone who doesn't. What do you mean you do that brilliantly in, in, in The Man on the Street, the Jimmy, don't you, seeing things that Jimmy, only Jimmy would notice, really. Yeah, that's handy. Sorry, Adam, I'm taking over here. I was quite yes, that's all right. I'm, I'm just listening with, you know, great attention here. I mean, I'm still getting over the fact that you only do one draft. Um, <laughs> that's got me flabbergasted. Considering, I think I did about 312 drafts of the first book, which actually I think it suffered for in the end, sort of an over overworking from me. But that was because I've, I had big gaffes when I was writing it. Second one, not so much, but I still probably did about four drafts before kind of handing it over. But that's amazing. I think I so did seven, seven of my first book, Adam, definitely, mm. uh, which is the Italian quarter. And I wrote it from one point of view and then rewrote it from another. So definitely. And even now, I don't know. I, even now, I think, oh, I would do that book differently if I wrote it now. It's funny, isn't it? Well, if we go back sort of 25 books then, what were your kind of beginnings into writing? Presumably you were, you, you read a lot. Was there a specific kind of, was it crime or genre or authors that you really loved? And how did you begin that transition into producing your own work? Well, I, I did always want to be a writer for as long as I can remember. And I actually did write my first crime novel when I was 11. And it was, it was called The Hair of the Dog, which must have been something my parents talked about, I guess. Um, <laughs> But, but it was a crime novel, and it was set in Rottingdean, which is, I live in Saltdean, just outside Brighton. Rottingdean's kind of the next village along. And it was set in Rottingdean. It was about a group of people who, um, who, who were kind of frustrated because nothing ever happens in Rottingdean. So they decide to stage a fake murder, and the fake murder turns into a real murder. And, you know, the, the book is, is not terribly good, but I do think that's quite a good plot. Yeah, I might bad. get back to it one day, you know. And... Um, and nothing ever happened with it, and I, I've lost most of it. My mum did keep some of it and 
when she died, I looked back through her papers and I did find the beginning of it. So I've got the beginning of it. So yeah, so I, you know, I obviously really liked crime novels even then. And when I was at secondary school, um, I used to write um, little episodes of Starsky and Hutch. I guess now you'd call it fan fiction, wouldn't yeah. you? But, so I was a big Starsky and Hutch fan. So I used to write these little episodes of Starsky and Hutch. And I remember that I wrote one episode um, and I killed Starsky, which which was a bit shocking, really, because um, he was my favourite. And I had this little group of friends, or even people I didn't know very well, who always wanted to read my next episode. So they'd be at you know, school saying, oh, have you written something? And I'd pass it around the class. And this time, when I passed it round, um, people cried. And I really liked that, you know. Mm. I really liked that I could make them cry. And it did make me think, you know, wow, you know, maybe I know how to do this. But, of course, there's no path to being a writer, is there? So, in a way, I kind of did the right things. I read English at university. I worked in a library for a little while. And then I worked in publishing. So I worked in publishing for a long time, worked for HarperCollins. I was... Um, I joined as a, as a publicity assistant, but I ended up as an editor, and eventually I was editorial director of children's fiction. Um, and then I went on maternity leave, so I've got twins who are 22, and it was only when I was on maternity leave that I thought, oh, I've, I've got to try and write now. So that's when, I, that's when I started to write what became my first published book, which was The Italian Quarter, as I say, published under my real name, you know, Domenica De Rosa. Yeah, and so... Brendan, I, I, I seem to remember you telling me, Ellie, that you kind of became a crime writer by accident, ultimately, didn't you? You, you wrote a book that you thought was just another in your Domenica yes. De Rosa theories, yeah. and so you went, no, it isn't. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So The Crossing Places is the first Ruth book, and when I wrote that and I showed it to my agent, I just thought it was, you know, it was very... In some ways, it was similar to the other Domenica De Rosa books. I had this sort of strong female main character, had this sort of sense of place, I hope, you know, and all those, all those things. And I always remember my, my agent then, um, I'm still with the same agency, but then my agent was called Tiff, and she said, oh, she said, oh, this is crime. You need a crime name. <laughs> so that's how I became Ellie Griffin. Yeah. What's, what, what strikes me there is that we've had a number of people on who work in the publishing industry, um, whether it's an agent, editor, whatever. And so far, unless I'm mistaken and I'm, and I'm forgetting here, whenever I ask them about, do you write or have ambitions to write or is it something you do that all kind of, oh, no, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't know where to start. I just know my job and enjoy that. And so it's, it's interesting having somebody who was working as an editor who then transitions into writing because it hasn't been the norm on the podcast guest list anyway. Um, and I, I, I think it's true that actually most editors probably – no, there have recently been, like Phoebe Morgan is one editor who, who've really been successful as writers. But I think it is a different skill. And I would probably have said the same, though, when I was an editor. Oh, no, I wouldn't want to write. But I did always want to write. And I think probably I'm a better writer than I was an editor. And in fact, now I think to myself, gosh, was I a nice enough editor? Because now I realise how incredibly, um, you know, how, especially during this lockdown year, I don't know if Trevor feels the same, we're so dependent on our agents and editors, really, and we need them to sort of bolster us and keep us going. And I don't, you know, I, I used to think, oh, they won't mind if they haven't heard from me for a bit. Little did I realise how needy <laughs> writers are. And, you know, we should, I should have been calling in every time to see if they're okay. So, yeah, so I think it's probably not entirely the, the norm. I don't think publishers full of people who really want to be authors. Also because you see how tough an author's life is, really. Mm. Uh, but I can certainly say that when I was an editor, I got as much pleasure from when my authors did well as I do now 
mm. when when my books do well, you know. Yeah. I, I re you really do get so much. You feel so pleased when, when your authors do well. It's, it is quite incredible. It's, it's a lovely job, really. Yeah, yeah. And so um, for those who maybe haven't read the Ruth Galloway series, I suppose why, for the, this would be the first question then, but... but if you could tell us a bit about Dr. Ruth Galloway and kind of the crossing places of the book, what the, what the kind of premise is there, that elevator pitch, and just a bit about that series. Well, yes, of course. So the crossing places um, starts with a forensic archaeologist called Dr. Ruth Galloway, and she lives on her own in some beautiful but rather bleak um, North Norfolk uh, uh, landscape on the, on the North Norfolk coast there. And she teaches at a made-up university called the University of North Norfolk. And one day Ruth goes into work and she finds a police officer waiting for her. He's DCI Harry Nelson. And he asks Ruth for her help in uh, digging up some bones. He's found some bones on the marshland. And I knew, know from my husband, who's an archaeologist, that forensic archaeologists are often asked for this sort of help. And Nelson thinks these bones might be those of a child who went missing 10 years ago. But when Ruth sees the bones, she knows immediately that they're 2,000 years old. But she then gets drawn into the case, that of the missing child, and incidentally into a very complicated relationship with the policeman, DCI Harry Nelson, which has not got any less complicated <laughs> by book 13. <laughs> well, it was looking to me like by book 14, it might be a bit less complicated, but we'll see when we get there, I guess. No plot spoilers. <laughs> and so, no, I, Adam, I'm fascinated by the forensic um, archaeologist side of it. Did you... Did you immediately know when you were thinking of the idea that there was such a creature out there? Because news to me. Well, I suppose I have to do I have to give a bit of credit to Andy, my husband, because when I first met him, he was a lawyer, like he had a proper job. Um, but he'd always wanted to be an archaeologist. And I always remember that when I first time I met him, him saying, Well, you know, I didn't want to be a lawyer. And he worked in the city, you know, and that's a very corporate world. I, I didn't want to work in the city, I want to be an archaeologist. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. Um, but when so when we had two children, he said, oh, I'd quite like to go back to university and do archaeology. It didn't seem that sweet, um, I can tell you. But he did go back to university and he, he became an archaeologist, is what he is now. When he's not furloughed, that is what he does. Um, and so through him, I did know about forensic archaeologists. And in fact, um, Andy introduced me to an amazing woman called Lucy Sibbon, who is a forensic archaeologist in Sussex. And she, when I met her, she'd just been digging up the garden of this guy, Peter Tobin, I think his name was, who was a serial killer. And they believed he had victims buried in his, his where he lived in Brighton. And that's what Lucy was doing. And I just saw her work and I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a fantastic woman. And what an amazing job that, that at this point, she as, a, as an academic, would be in contact with the police during, you know, investigating a murder. And what an interesting sort of interface that is, because there, there's so many things that are similar with an archaeologist's work and the detective's work, but also there's so many things that are different. So really, that was part of, of the sort of starting point of um, of the crossing places. But you know, so forensic archaeologists are often involved in in uh, in murder cases and forensic anthropologists as well, and that they because they can look, they can tell from 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 a burial site, um, from the grave cut, it's called, which is a great word, isn't it? Whether whether the bones are just sort of accidentally been buried there or whether someone has dug a hole and buried them. 
and they can tell all sorts of things. They can they can read that context. And I find that so interesting. I've learned all sorts of things like, you know, you can tell from a bone sometimes if, if the person had a tattoo and just really, um, oh, and one of the best things that Lucy ever said to me was that if you have nettles in your garden, you could well have a body. Because <laughs> nettles only grow if there's like human remains. Well, actually, if there's human... It, if there's human interaction. So I guess somebody could have weed in your garden and there would still be nettles. But nettles don't grow where there aren't humans. So isn't that interesting? Mm. I knew that because that was in the latest book, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably in a few of the books. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it's worth repeating. Well, I'm, theori you, I'm theoretically in the process, by the way, of buying a, a new house with a large garden. I didn't think to check the garden out for nettles, actually. <laughs> but it's, it, it, Look it for was, nettles. Yeah. Because I'm, you I'm, don't... You don't want to find, well, maybe you do want to find, because <laughs> I, I live in, a, you know, a fairly sort of modern modern bit of Brighton, uh, 1920s it sort of started, but uh, neighbours did did find a, a, a Neolithic body in their garden. Had had wow. Fascinating. Wow. I, 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 have you ever done any panels with Simon Beckett, the, who does the Forensic Anthropologist stuff series? Yes, I love his books. Yeah, I did a, a panel with him a couple of years ago in Sheffield. Yeah, oh, okay. he's, he's, a, he's amazing, isn't he? Like, and he went to that body farm, didn't he, it's in, in America, <laughs> where they have all these bodies in state uh, composition. Uh, uh, he, yeah, I love his books, actually. Because that's the only similar character I can think of. His, his uh, David Hunter, I think, isn't it? Who, mm. who, he's more of a, on the chemistry side, isn't he? It's all about... Uh, the the insects that you find in the bodies and working out how long it's been there and stuff like that it's pretty pretty gross stuff but but they're the two unique protagonists in crime series I think I can't think of any others that that either aren't cops or or something similar really oh thank you I, I do and I think it's really interesting because in his books as well you get that the sort of tension sometimes between the scientists and and, and the, the police and I suppose Kathy Reichs as well the Temperley Brennan that's books. what came to my mind like yeah yeah right. and she's done that job she is a forensic anthropologist so oh, yeah, um, okay. you can sort of see that in the, and the, the TV series called Bones isn't it so mm. uh, I mean oh, it's, in, in some ways it's like if you if you write a police procedure and you've got a detective as your main character. Obviously, they're a bit of a dime a dozen, um, and I write that, so I can say that as well. It's fine. Um, and that's kind of all right, but if you have something that's a bit different and you find out there's one other person who's kind of got that, even though you're still super rare, it's a bit annoying. Because <laughs> you kind of think, why can't I be the only one rather than kind of one of two or three? Because it suddenly feels a bit competitive there. But So you were talking about Ruth Galloway there before, and so I guess I have a couple of questions, and, and I find the best series, any kind of crime series, the ones that I love, I'm really invested and interested in the character, their life and the ups and downs and trials and tribulations that they kind of go through. And you mentioned about the complicated relationship that's no less complicated now. So I guess a couple of questions within that are, were you really conscious of Ruth's character and wanting to kind of have ups and downs and develop in relationships as, as that was going on, as much as the plot there? And, and did you have a, a vision of it being a long series at the beginning? Oh, those are really good questions. Um, I didn't, well, so when I wrote The Crossing Places, I did think, I kind of knew that Ruth and Nelson had a sort of long story there, but I didn't know that I'd get to write it because it was just a one book deal. So it, it has felt, you know, really great that, I, that I've had this space, you know, and, and my publishers have, have allowed me, you know, to have this space to... Um, 
to develop the characters really. So yeah, so I had always, you know, I didn't know that it would go on longer, but I wasn't always sure, you know, what what would what would happen at the end. I don't know. Mm. They all, I'm fascinated by. I don't know if you're saying something about Norfolk, but all the characters seem to have relationships with each other at some point in the series. <laughs> like her, you know, her boss is having a relationship with her best friend. One of the police women has a relationship with one of the other characters. They're, they're, they almost seem interchangeable at times with who they're going to be with next. Like I, I struggle to keep up at times on 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 who's whose partner. Are they? I think that's the. <laughs> thing about a long series though isn't it that you do end up with quite a tangled web of, of people who maybe maybe if it seems like that in book 13 it probably didn't seem like that in book one where Cathbad the Drury character for example was just another suspect really so yes it, it, it might seem it a bit incestuous if that's what you're getting at Trevor but, <laughs> but, I, but I think probably it's just something that happens over a long series and I don't oh, know I didn't ask you, about Cathbad Ellie because I I'm glad you said that because my memory of him was that he was a suspect in the first book so so did you not Imagine him as a recurring character when you first wrote that. Did that just happen kind of organically because you just liked writing? Yeah, definitely. He was He was just, I knew that Jewitts had been involved because the first book's about that sort of wood henge, you know, in in on in, um, in Norfolk, the discovery of that henge. And I knew that Jewitts had been involved because they didn't think the timbers should be moved. So I knew there would be a Jewitt character in it, but I did think he would just be for that book. Yeah. And, and he has recurred. And sometimes I think, so now book 13, you know, I think to myself, has he, has he sort of, you know, become uh, too cosy a character? But then I do, I do also think that it's also because we're used to him, you know, because, um, and I don't know if you feel like that with the second Jimmy book, maybe that, that which I haven't read like Adam, I'm waiting to read it. I love the first one. Um, you know, that, that you're used to a character. So when Cathbad just turns up out of the mist at the right moment, you know, you think, oh, that's just what Cathbad does. But it's still actually quite spooky. It's just that you're used to it. So I think maybe that might be part of it. And although I do really like writing about him, and I think he, I, I do think he's a good character, I find it quite hard to write. I find it quite hard to write somebody with that particular worldview because I feel that when I'm in his head, I have to totally represent it. So there are probably not that many bits that are actually from his point of view. Yeah, Okay. I do like, I, I quite like the fact that characters just kind of insist on coming back, really. You don't have much say in it, I think. They just say, no, no, I'm going to be in the book. Go, I oh, think, okay. I'm sure we've all found that. Adam, have you found that? I'm sure you have. It, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so if we look to your latest book then, um, which I believe came out this month, is that, yeah? It came out... Uh, Last week it came out on the fourth of yes. February. Was that yeah. only last week? That was that two weeks ago. Anyhow, yes, it came out this month. It came out on the fourth of February. So let's if you tell people about that then, a bit about the latest book, and and maybe how how things have. I mean, obviously without giving anything away, how things have changed in this series for, for, since the first book then. Oh, thank you so well. So the Night Talks is book thirteen, um, and it starts. Uh, Night Talks is a is a name given to Night Hawking is a name given to sort of illegal, um, unregistered metal detectors and uh, taking artifacts from archaeological sites. So it's usually a 
pejorative term, but the group in, in my book are actually quite sort of uh, law-abiding. So a group of metal detectorists are looking on a beach at Norfolk at night and they find a body, uh, a body that's been washed ashore. And on the same beach, uh, a Bronze Age body is found. So Ruth, who is now head of department at the University of North Norfolk, is called in to look at the Bronze Age body. Nelson comes in to look at the, 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 the recently uh, deceased body and the two cases merge. And then they're also both involved in a case at a sinister place called Black Dog Farm, which is nearby. And um, that allowed me to bring in the famous Norfolk legend of Black Shuck, this black dog that appears to, to people. It's usually bad, bad when it appears to you. And the, I know that there's a northern legend, she says, in a very southern way, using northern to mean everywhere. Uh, the guy trash, a, a black dog who appears to people. And um, Rowan Coleman reminded me recently that he appears in Jane Eyre. So uh, that there's that many parts of the country have this legend of a black dog that, that is a bad omen. So there's that legend involved in the book as well. So it's a very complicated case for Ruth and Nelson, and it involves a, a very sinister and spooky farmhouse where it's possible scientific experimentation has been happening. Well, wow. we're to start there then, Trevor. Off you go. <laughs> it's very good. Adam. I, I luckily an advanced copy because I, I was supposed to be interviewing Ellie in about a month's time, I think, um, for an event, but it's been put back now. But it didn't mean, fortunately, that I got sent an advanced copy, so I'm ahead of the game on... No, you I'm, should always get one, definitely. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, I'd agree with that, Ellie, but, you know... So it'll not be, um, not be your first launch then during lockdown, but how's that been and how's that impacted things for you? And is it, has it been fun in a different way or do you find it frustrating? Definitely been fun in a different way. I wasn't sure what would happen, really. So, so a year ago, the previous book, Lantern Men, came out and actually did quite a big tour you know I started in, in Norfolk of course I did Norwich and um, went to Newcastle and, uh, and Leeds and uh, then up to Edinburgh and Glasgow so did a really big tour so this year obviously it's going to be very different but actually I have really enjoyed it I started off so all the Ruth books always been launched at Jarrell's which is an independent bookshop in Norwich this one was as well so we did an online event and of course what's lovely is you can have people from all over the country, even all over the world. And then I did an event at Toppings and that, that was similar. So actually it's been really nice and it has felt quite intimate and been able to chat about the book, you know, and, and, and things like, like your brilliant podcast, you know. It, it has it has been nice actually, and I haven't had to leave my shed. So what's not to like about that? You, know? <laughs> you must have you must have squeezed that touring just under the wire of the lockdown. Yeah, and I was making jokes and everything because um, uh, COVID had just surfaced in Brighton. Um, a, a, a poor guy wasn't, I don't think, the super spreader, but there were cases in Brighton. I remember making jokes about that on their tour. Yeah, and and uh, and then I came back sort of mid-February, and then lockdown happened in March. So, yes, it really was. And yeah, the funny thing was I started writing The Night Hawks then. So it was a book that was entirely written in lockdown. So uh, I don't know how you both have felt about writing in lockdown, but um, I feel that it has contributed to, and I don't know, Trevor, if you think this about the book, it has quite a claustrophobic, scary sort of atmosphere. And I think that might be because it was written in lockdown. And also, I think I threw in every Norfolk-y thing I could think of because <laughs> I was missing Norfolk so much. I wasn't able to travel there. So it's got, it's not only got Black Shark, it's got... Um, 
It's got the Sheringham Mermaid, the Norfolk Sea Monster, who doesn't appear in enough books, in my opinion. So it's got all lots of Norfolk myths and legends. Talk, talking of claustrophobic and scary, and I haven't read this, so I'm at a slight disadvantage, but I, I'm, I'm just about to send off my third Jimmy book to Jane, and after that, I'm going to try standalone. Now, I'm clearly talking to the world's expert here because... You decided to write a standalone and it won the bloody Edgar Award in the States. Your first standalone, that's ridiculous. So what's the secret is my question. Also, Tre- before that though, Trevor, is that hot off the press, that news about your standalone? Or is that something that, that we've all known about? Uh, no, I think I've spoken to it, uh, about it a bit. I, I always intended Jimmy to be a three-book series, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a two-book deal for the second two books, for third and fourth, so... The fourth in the contract says something like, you know, as yet unnamed or something. Yeah. Um, it's so scary when you get that, though, isn't it? <laughs> you God, yeah. So that's wow. our new advice. How did you do it? You, I mean, the Edgar Award, no no Brit writers win that. I, I actually oh. did some research, and I Ian Rankin about 20 years ago was the last one. Oh, thank so, you so much for mentioning that, which still stops me. Well, I said it's the Stranger Diaries, by the way. <laughs> it is the Stranger Diaries, yeah, the Stranger Diaries, yeah. Yeah, I was so chuffed. And again, that was a bit surreal because I knew it was shortlisted and I had the tickets booked to go to New York and, you know, enjoy myself. And, and then, of course, all that was cancelled. So, again, I just found out that it won the Edgar in this little writing shed. Do you know, I wonder if you're going to have the same experience that I had, Trevor, in that I wanted to, I wanted to write a standalone for a while and I wanted to write a sort of gothic um, story, but I didn't want to set it in the past. So then I got the idea of sort of um, centering it around a made-up uh, Victorian short story um, and uh, a teacher, who a creative writing teacher who teaches this short story, and then there's a series of murders that, that echo the murders in, in the short story, and then the short story is called The Stranger. So I really enjoyed immersing myself in all that sort of gothic stuff. But I found that, that I loved writing it, and it gave me real sense of freedom because you're writing these characters who... Um, they could be anyone, you know. I, I you know, you're, you're writing a series figure, and of course, people people start to really like them and empathise with them, which of course is great. But it means they can't be an unreliable narrator, really, in any way. Whereas, you know, you start off with new characters; they could be anything. So, I found that really invigorating. But I also found that it meant that I went back to Ruth because I carried on writing the Ruth books afterwards with a lot of extra enthusiasm. So, I wonder if you're going to find that. I don't know whether you're going to find that after your standalone, you might want to write more Jimmy books. I don't yeah, know. Well, so I'm suspecting James had a word with with Ellie, I think, and you know, whispered <laughs> her said, "Get him to write another one." Jane does have a way of getting you to write what she wants because I remember I was like you I just had in my contract standalone one, and Jane said, "Write what you like." So I gave her some ideas, and she said, mm, "Yeah." maybe have some more ideas <laughs> and, and she, she came down to Brighton to have, to have lunch with me and it was that day that remember that day was, was it Storm Ophelia when all the sky was yellow oh, yeah, and I yeah. suddenly had the idea for the Stranger Diaries and I sent it to her um, as soon as I got home I just put some ideas down and she said yeah no that's the story I want so it was clear that the other ones weren't quite what she wanted <laughs> well, okay I, be- I better come up with a short list then we're going to talk there's about a thousand things I want, I want to really talk about but we, we only have a couple of minutes left I'm afraid so maybe we'll have to get you back on as a guest sometime in the future and be perhaps our first returning guest that would be a... I'd love that Adam, thank you. Yeah, I don't know how time whizzes past, but no. it really has, doesn't it? So we have, we have three questions we ask everybody that comes on the podcast, so I'll put them to you. 
Um, and the first one is, so assuming that you have all your books in your writing shed, um, if the shed was to burn down, what's the one book, not your own, that you would save? And not, um, I don't have all my books here. Actually, most of them are down the house, but... Uh... We can burn the house down as well, if you like. You know? Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. Um, well, my favourite book is probably The Woman in White. And when I wrote The Stranger Diaries, uh, Jane did give me a beautiful edition of, of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. So that would be the one I'd say. Brilliant. So if you were on death row, what would your final <laughs> meal request be? A final book request? Meal request. Um, meal. Sorry? Meal, meal request. request, yes. Oh, um, probably would be something Italian. It would be um, spaghetti bongolo or something like that. Fettuccine Alfredo, something like that. Nice. And so peanut butter, do you prefer it smooth or crunchy? Or like some of our guests are actually allergic to it and have potentially uh, killed you off. I love it. Crunchy. Okay. Thank you very much then. So Ellie Griffiths, thank you for coming on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Adam. It lovely, Thank you. lovely to see you again. Thank you. Here we are in the After Show segment of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, Ian Peacock, and co-host Trevor Wood. Uh, for listeners of the show, please do keep liking, sharing, and you know, letting all your mates know that this show exists. Your support helps this keep going. You can follow the Northern Crime Syndicate on Twitter, uh, at northern underscore crime or give us a like on facebook and you can stay up to date with what all the different authors are up to which book releases are on the go and what online events we have coming up as well so trevor initial thoughts after that interview then <laughs> you know there's quite a few contenders for the nicest person in crime writing but i but i think ellie's right up there frankly um i mean she's been a huge support to me um because we've got the same editor, the same publisher. Uh, the first time I went to Harrogate, I literally knew one person there, and there was a Quirkus dinner, and, and my editor, Jane, very cleverly sat me next down, sat me down next to Ellie, which, you know, was hugely reassuring. She was she was great, and she's she's helped um, quite a few times over the last few years. Um, she's been great. Yeah. I mean, we... the. Uh, this idea of having a writing shed really appeals to me. Like, like I say, with this new place that I may or may not end up moving into, depending on whether the economy crashes and burns, um, you know, there's room to do something like that. And I do quite like the idea of having kind of a, a cave somewhere in the garden that's done out to like writing, you know, as a separate space. Um, so I think that'd be pretty. Cool. I've got no chance of that. If we if we had to if we had a separate space in the back garden, my wife's pottery um schedule would take that over i think there'd be a kiln in there before i could speak aye, aye. So, so i'm stuck i think so what are you up to then now what's what's happening with you obviously you're sending off books finishing books books coming um, out yeah I'm, I'm i'm literally about a day away from finishing um jimmy jimmy book three um dead end street it's it's pretty much certainly going to be called i think uh i've got like i say i've got about 50 pages to just look through finally before I send it off. Uh, and then I've got a short story to write, actually. Um, you know, the Afraid um, charity anthologies, the Afraid of the uh, Christmas Lights, I think, was one, and Afraid of the Dark was another one. Uh, uh, there's going to be a Halloween one, and they've asked me if I'll write something for it, so I've got to start thinking about that. I was getting confused. I was thinking, are we that close to Halloween? Because, you know, you just forget <laughs> what month or date is and just... 
I was saying, you know, we obviously, you know, not to dwell on lockdown, but this idea that spring sort of March, April might bring about some change. I remember thinking that seemed ages away around Christmas, but now we're kind of halfway through February. It's like, well, we're rattling along nicely, you know, nearly there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about the writing the final Jimmy book then sort of sending that off and then doing the standalone? Is, is there what kind of emotions are you going through with that? Or do you not care? <laughs> I think fear is probably the the, the main one. <laughs> Having to start something completely from scratch. Mm. I, you know, it's been a while since I've had to do that, really. When you, mm. I mean, there are downsides to writing series, I think, but, but one of the upsides is that when you come to start a new book, mm. you kind of know, you know, half the characters at least, and you've got a kind of good idea about how they react and how they speak. Exactly, um, yeah. And I think it's like, if and if you have a following from a series, you know that people... Whether they might think, well, I prefer the kind of the plot in whatever book. A big part of the battle is loving the characters. And if you have that, provided they don't change too much, which can happen, um, and things happen to them, I think you you can rely on your following, kind of keep keeping going with you. But then when you bring out the standalone, it's kind of like it will always be compared, at least in your mind, to yeah, you know, what, what the series was like, you know? Um, I mean, that's why Ellie's story is such an inspiration. I mean, she would, she'd written God knows how many Ruth Galloway books and the Brighton Mysteries, and then she just nips off and writes a standalone and it wins the Edgar Award. I, I'm just, I, I just can't quite get my head around how that's possible, you know. <laughs> but it's encouraging, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So anything else on the horizon? You're watching anything or reading anything or doing anything of... Um, I, with, well, without getting too incestuous, I, I've literally, I'm about two pages into um, Robert Scragg's um, new book, End of the Line. Uh, so looking forward to really getting stuck into that. Uh, what am I watching? Everything I'm watching has just finished, actually. So I've been watching Lupin or Lupin. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that, yeah. French kind of, um, I don't know what you call it. I mean, it's crime, but it's it's interesting. They kind of pitched it as a a um, Ocean's Eleven type thing, but it's not really. But there was only five episodes, so I've run out of that now. So started. Oh, we started a Welsh crime show called Hinterland last night. Okay. Um, so we'll see how that goes, I think. Did you ever watch Young Volander? That was on Netflix. No. No, that was quite good. I enjoyed it. Because, I mean, I love the Henning Mankell series, and it's a bit and odd in that it's like, it's that character, but like a prequel because he's young, but it's also set in modern day. So it's a prequel, but kind of isn't, but is and isn't. Oh. Um, but I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was, it was good. I enjoyed the characterization. I always like the Scandi kind of backdrop to everything, you know. It's yeah, yeah, me too. Big oh, fan check of that. So, yeah, you can check it out. I'm watching Parks and Rec at the minute. Parks and Recreation, <laughs> a comedy show, came out on Netflix. I mean, I've yeah, seen it once you're before. You're younger than me, Adam. I, I don't know. My daughter likes I'm it. I'm telling you, if if you want something to just make you feel good, an easy watch with short episodes, Parks and Rec is exactly what you need to put on right now. Well, I, I would I would suggest Shit's Creek for that, but I've just it's a sim- Yeah, similar kind of vibe. Yeah. Okay. I've just watched that for the second time, the entire series, and it was terrific. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it all, but I, I do watch it. It is it is great. Like, you need that. You need a show like that in lockdown. I mean, yes. You need something that you can just relax to and chill out and just smile. Yeah. Well, I've been watching How to Get Away with Murder, and I have to dip in and out of it because I'm like, you know, that was quite tense. You know, all this is going on. It's, it's so <laughs> manic, and I'm like... I think I need to watch something at a different pace. So maybe a bit of Blue Planet or something would uh, would change things up somewhat. <laughs> well, I've got Pam's Pottery shows to watch for that. Moment, <laughs> right. And there are lots of them. Trust me, there are lots of them. Well, on that note, I'll let you go and you can get back to watching them. So uh, it's always <laughs> nice to speak to you, Trevor. Thank you very much for co-hosting today on the show.
Absolute pleasure. Cheers, Adam. Thank you.